Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Divine love, help us to see the ways that we have failed to hear your groaning with the suffering, the ways we failed to hear the groaning of the suffering for liberation. Help us to make meaning of Jesus' death for all who are in need of freedom today. Amen. And please be seated. Last Sunday, Ben introduced our annual sermon series, Voices in the Wilderness, which intends to train our attention on global voices that articulate the theological visions of the oppressed. Through Ben's sermon, we were introduced to the witness of black theology, and a primary focus within black theology is liberation. Liberation by a God who reveals solidarity with the oppressed in Jesus. I'd like to say that one more time. A primary focus within black theology is liberation. Liberation by a God who reveals solidarity with the oppressed in Jesus. This definition is central to black theology's understanding of atonement. Atonement, put simply, refers to a reconciled state between two parties that were formerly alienated. So whenever we see two parties formerly alienated, those parties could be any kinds of peoples or situations. When those are coming together, then we see reconciliation. That is atonement. And within Christian perspective, atonement is accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I know this is a lot of theological language, and this sermon's going to feel a little bit more like a teaching probably than a sermon, but I think it's probably one of the most important teachings for us to hear as a Christian people in 2023. It's really, really important to unpack some of these theological ideas if we're going to truly allow the divine light of black theology to shape our understanding of God as is revealed in Jesus. I attended a conservative, primarily white, evangelical seminary in the late 90s, early 2000s. While at seminary, I was repeatedly warned about the grave danger of black theology. To be clear, nobody said, be warned about black theology. It was much more subtle than that. Instead, I was exhorted, be very cautious about liberation theology. The reason was, and I use air quotes here, the reasoning was biblical. Be very cautious about liberation theology because its focus on liberation and justice and hope in the midst of suffering, although important and necessary, isn't central to the gospel. According to my seminary training in white conservative theology, central to the gospel, and I use air quotes again, central to the gospel is the shedding of Jesus' blood on a cross, which is necessary for God to forgive humans of their sins. Believe that and go to heaven. Fail to believe that and go to hell. 
Now, just to show that I'm not alone in this understanding of the gospel, please raise your hand if you've heard religious language like this before. Yeah, that's the gospel. But if you stick with me, I think this will begin to make important sense. I'm going to split some theological hairs here, but they're really important hairs to split. Believing in the shedding of Jesus' blood on a cross as necessary for God's forgiveness can actually be gospel. But technically speaking, that is a theological statement about atonement. Gospel, put simply, is the declaration of good news. It's a basic definition for gospel. The declaration of good news. That's why Jesus walks into the synagogue in Luke 4 and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news from the Greek euagelion, gospel. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news, gospel. And what is the good news? What is the gospel according to Jesus? It's freedom from bondage. It's healing for the sick. It's release for the oppressed. It's the proclamation of divine favor on every person. According to Jesus, that's gospel. It's gospel, you see, because it's truly good news. Throughout every generation in social moray in time. If you're in bondage and suddenly freed, or if you're sick and suddenly healed, if you're oppressed and suddenly set free, if you're unfavored within society and finally favored, that is always, in every circumstance and generation, good news. I found this to be a very helpful way to talk about the gospel of Jesus. What is the gospel of Jesus? The gospel of Jesus is the declaration of good news in the world. Well, that sounds real nice, Mike, but what about Jesus and the cross and the shedding of his blood? What do we do with all of that? And that's a great question. When we ask that question, we're deep in the theological world of atonement. The work of Christian atonement is to make meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection in order to declare good news gospel to the world. Now, here's where things begin to get real interesting. Which New Testament author wrote the most about the meaning of Jesus' shed blood on the cross, which brings about the forgiveness of sins? Anybody? Paul. The Apostle Paul, right? Uh, and this is, sometimes people read Paul and they're like, whoo, I do not know what to do with Paul. You see, Paul's primary understanding of good news, that is to say, Paul's gospel is that Jesus shed blood and death on the cross, fulfilled the requirements of Israel's sacrificial system, thereby pleasing God. And ultimately, according to Paul, those who believe in Jesus shed blood on the cross receive forgiveness, thereby entering into a relationship with God. About this, I'd like us to consider the question, why? So important. Why is an atonement in which those who believe in Jesus shed blood on the cross to receive forgiveness, thereby entering into relationship with God, why is that good news, and here's the important part, for Paul? Now, depending on your background, you may answer, well, because that's what Paul, God told Paul to write. God told Paul to write it, so that's why I believe it. But to be clear, those kinds of answers rise from a framework in which people perceive the Bible as infallible and inerrant, which we've talked about a lot here at Pearl. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go to our website and click on resources. You can read a reflection titled Harmonization and Accommodation. But put simply, prior to the Enlightenment and later generations, words like infallible and inerrant were never used to describe the Bible. 
That's a modern construct for the Scriptures. Before that, for the first 1,800 years of Christian life in the world, the Bible was understood to be sacred. It was understood to be inspired by God. But here's the key difference. It was understood to be written by humans who could not conceive of life outside of their own context and culture. Now, if you think I'm stretching things, an example would be this. The biblical authors could not conceive of a world in which slavery didn't exist. That's why none of the authors ever called for the abolition of slavery. As another example, the biblical authors could not conceive of evolution. They just couldn't conceive of it. They were set down in their time, inspired by God, to inspire the world with thoughts about God. The list of examples could go on and on. But with this notion in mind, I'd like to ask the same question again. Why is an atonement in which those who believe in Jesus shed blood on a cross to receive forgiveness, thereby entering into relationship with God, good news for Paul? Answer, because before encountering Jesus, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. That is to say, before encountering Jesus, Paul was an expert in the law. That's what Pharisees were. Paul was an expert in the law with all of its regulations and all of its sacrifices and all of the things that Israel needed to do in order to please the divine. And so think with me here. Paul has a vision in which Jesus asks him, why are you persecuting me? Paul then decides to follow after Jesus. But as a good Pharisee, in order to follow after Jesus, Paul has to do some work. Paul has to figure out how Jesus fulfills the regulations and sacrifices that gave shape to how Paul understood the world that he lived in as a Pharisee. And the end result is Paul's primary perspective on atonement, which is Jesus shed blood on a cross fulfills the law. Jesus shed blood on the cross is the perfect sacrifice. And this is, for Paul, deeply, pervasively good news. This meaning-making of atonement within his framework set Paul and all under the law free. That is to say, this was gospel for Paul. Now, with this context in mind, there are two types of people today for whom Paul's primary expression of atonement is good news gospel. First, Paul's primary expression of atonement is good news for people today who read the Bible and say, God said it, I believe it. Even if it means that they have to believe in a God who requires blood, the blood of his own son in particular to forgive sins. Those people, because of their post-enlightenment perspective and evolving evangelical view on the Bible, must respond to Paul's atonement with something like, I don't care. Sure, maybe it's weird or seemingly unnecessary or even kind of violent, and in my mind it doesn't really maybe make a whole lot of sense, but God said it, and so I believe it. Now, if you're thinking in this moment, where is this all going, Mike? I thought this sermon was supposed to be about black theology. This next statement begins to head in that direction. A second kind of person for whom Paul's primary expression of atonement is good news today is for people who do not need physical freedom, physical healing, physical release, or the experience of divine favor thinking in terms of who that person is in today in the United States, that is going to be middle, upper class, straight, white citizens. 
This is one of the major points that Ben made last week. He said, white theology tends to turn these stories, stories about bringing exiles home, healing, lifting burdens, giving voice to the oppressed, and challenging systems of power. White theology tends to turn these stories into metaphor about liberation, not from oppression, but from sin and damnation. And so God liberates from Egypt, but Egypt is an image of slavery to sin, not truly the freedom of slaves. God cares for widows and orphans, which is nice, but if we really care, we'll save their souls. Prophets cry out against injustice, but that's how the world is, and real liberation is eternal life up there in heaven. You see, having shifted the focus from liberation here and now to forgiveness and eternal life, white theology can now use all of this language of liberation without intending to lift a finger to liberate. And of course, liberation from oppression is good, but because it's not central to Christian identity, we don't need to seek it out. Are you starting to see some of these important connections? Baked into a privileged people reading Paul's atonement, in which Jesus shed blood saves sinners, people of privilege, middle, upper class, straight, white citizens of the United States, only need a spiritual salvation because their lives are already good. Baked into a privileged people reading Paul's atonement, in which belief in Jesus shed blood saves sinners, people of privilege don't have to help liberate those who are oppressed because as they see it, that's not the gospel. Baked into a privileged people reading Paul's atonement in which belief in Jesus shed blood saves sinners, people of privilege are able to maintain center stage, telling everyone around them what they must think and do in order to truly belong. And that, I mean, among other things, that foments a racist gospel. Remember, gospel literally means good news. And this particular news that we've been discussing is only good for those who see the Bible a certain way or for those who have no physical need for help or liberation. And so Dr. King wrote in his letter from Birmingham jail, I have heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which makes a strange, unbiblical distinction between body and soul, between sacred and secular. King goes on, In response to black suffering, white theology has offered forgiveness from sins and relief in heaven. In response to calls for black equality, white church structures have offered integration. You can come here so long as it does not change who we are and how we do things, so long as our values, our language, our culture, our voices are still in control. And speaking directly to white American theology on atonement, and and this is really interesting, and to black churches caught up in white American theology, the great black theologian James Cone wrote in his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, these incredible words. I accept Dolores Williams' rejection of theories of atonement as found in the Western theological tradition and in the uncritical proclamation of the cross in many black churches. I find nothing redemptive about suffering in itself. The gospel of Jesus is not a rational concept to be explained in a theory of salvation, but a story of God's presence in Jesus' solidarity with the oppressed, which led to his death on the cross." What is redemptive is the faith that God snatches victory out of defeat, life out of death, and hope out of despair, as is revealed in the biblical and black proclamation of Jesus' resurrection. 
Perhaps this is a helpful way to think about it. If you were a black child, woman, or man in 19th century United States, and you witnessed the lynchings of family and friends and neighbors by white Christians who lynched in the name of God and justice, is an atonement explaining that God killed Jesus on a tree in order to forgive sins good news? Is that good news for people with that experience? In fact, it's horrifying news. Oh, but Mike, it's in the Bible. Yes. And fortunately for white people, it's good news because our privilege only requires a spiritual salvation. It's good news for white people because we don't live in a country in which our forebears were captured, chained, shipped, raped, enslaved, and hung on trees in the name of Jesus. Not only is it unequivocally violent to demand that a person believe in the goodness of a divine death penalty in order to be saved, but in light of black lives crying out for good news of liberation, it's wrong. Horrifically wrong for white people to demand that black people believe in a gospel that isn't truly good for their lives or situations. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that forgiveness isn't important. It's really important. Every person feels bad about their mistakes and sins, right? Every person holds the weight and burden of regret. And to be very clear, stories and tables that praise and sing about and evoke divine forgiveness are deeply necessary and pervasively Christian. But again, to be clear, God was in the business of forgiving long before Jesus died on a cross. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, God was forgiving sins. You can read it over and over and over again in the Hebrew Scriptures. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus was forgiving sins long before he was hung on a tree. And so here's the thing. If Paul's primary aspect on atonement helps you to know and to receive forgiveness and to belong in God, wonderful. That's good news. That's a kind of gospel working itself out to free you from your sins and your burdens in your life. But there must be more ever more good news. To put it frankly, good news gospel must be freed to truly be good for everyone, especially the other in every generation. Mike, you're awash in uh, relativism. I don't think so. I think a better word is relevantism. And that's important. It's the only way to ensure that good news gospel doesn't get hijacked by those who hold all of the power. And more so, to do the work of making relevant meaning of Jesus' death on a tree, this beautiful work of atonement in the world, that ongoing work, that evolving work, is deeply supported both historically and biblically. I'll briefly explain. Historically speaking, over the centuries, different social mores and societies have emphasized different aspects of atonement based on, and hear this, this is really interesting, based on relevance. For example, in the earliest years of the church, about the first 1,100 years, the majority of Christians focused on atonement as being primarily for the devil. I'll come back to that in just a moment. In later years, the majority of Christians thought that atonement was primarily to please God, and then still years later, a primary focus of atonement began to think about the crucifixion of Jesus for humans. Here's what I mean. To the surprise of many, the earliest understanding of atonement in church history is that Jesus' death was for the devil. This is called Christus Victor. It's a famous theory on atonement. 
Here's the idea. The idea of atonement dealt with a divine conflict and victory, and Christ, Christus Victor, fought and triumphed over evil using his own body as bait to snatch and catch the devil and hold him fast. Now, if you think this way of understanding atonement is a little bit absurd, like you're not convinced that the devil has everybody you know, caught, well, by the 11th century came the demise of Christus Victor's Satanward focus, and Anselm of Canterbury wrote, Okay, supposing that the devil or man were his own master or belonged to someone other than God or was permanently in the power of someone other than God, then perhaps one could think justly in those terms. Anselm's basically saying, to think that atonement was for the devil is, is absurd. The devil doesn't control us or the world. You see, Anselm and many of his contemporaries couldn't conceive of a world somehow held in bondage by a devil. And so, believing that God alone was in power, not Satan, Anselm begins to put out into the world this thing called satisfaction theory. According to satisfaction theory, which very much aligns with Paul's focus on atonement, God needed Jesus' blood to be satisfied. And that worked for a very long time. Unfortunately, it's continuing to work today, especially in American Christianity. But then came along Peter Aberlard, who, like Anselm of Canterbury, couldn't logically conceive of a world trapped by the devil. But he went even further. He could not conceive of a God who needed blood in order to forgive and love humans. And so he explained what's called humanistic theory, in which Jesus' death wasn't for Satan, it wasn't for God, it was for humans. Humans need to know the amazing depth of God's love for humanity, which is demonstrated by Jesus' self-giving on the cross. Now, here's the really important connection to black theology. It's out of this perspective that Cohn explains the atonement as divine solidarity, in which God in Jesus suffers with all who suffer. God in Jesus hangs with all who hang. And in Jesus' resurrection, those who unjustly suffer and die have hope in rising like Christ to new life. And so you see, church history shows us an evolution in the meaning of Jesus' atonement based on the needs and perspectives of the times. And the Bible actually makes space for this kind of meaning-making. For example, we've already talked about a bunch of Paul's primary focus on atonement, which is Jesus' shed blood, which brings forgiveness. But in Romans 5, we read that Jesus' death proves God's love. That's kind of humanistic theory. God did this to show us that God loves us. And in Ephesians 2, I love this one, we read that Jesus' death makes two races one. Oh, I'd love to see some more atonement worked out there. We could use a lot of racial work and integration and healing in the world. Wouldn't it be phenomenal if Jesus' death could be part of that conversation? And here's my favorite verse on atonement, Colossians 1. It reads, It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? According to these verses, anything and everything on earth or in heaven is reconciled to God through Jesus. That's how big and buoyant and relevant Jesus' death on the cross can be if we only allow it. As I understand it, the Bible, history, and common sense invite us into the ongoing work of atonement, which is justified by one central question. Is that, 
Is that way of understanding Jesus' death on the cross truly good news? And not just for me, but for those who really suffer. Here's another way to ask it. Does that way of understanding Jesus' death on the cross rouse more and more freedom from bondage? More and more healing for the sick? More and more release for the oppressed? More and more proclamation of God's favor, especially on the marginalized? Yes, sure, spiritually, but also very literally. You see, a biblical, historical, and common sense approach to atonement insists that whoever has been set free, healed, and included in the beloved community of God must keep asking again and again, who's next? Who's next? And whoever is next must have the agency and the meaning-making of atonement that their lives and situations desperately need. We need the meaning-making of Jesus' atonement to make sense to the people who truly suffer. And this, you see, is a dynamic, always evolving atonement that continues the work of God in Jesus today. This is the way in which atonement frees us from a static cross, a violent cross, a racist cross, in which the privileged hold the keys to an impotent salvation that means very little to those who truly suffer. And so black theology shines divine light on the meaning of Jesus' death which is liberation found through God's solidarity with all who suffer. May we heed the deeply, truly, pervasively good news. And let us pray. Divine love, help us to see the ways that we have failed to hear. Failed to hear your groaning with the suffering. Failed to hear the groaning of the suffering for liberation. And help us to bravely, courageously enter into the meaning-making of Jesus' death for all who are in need of freedom today. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.